so on September 9th of 19... Nope. So on September 9th... <laughs> there's so many nines. On September 9th of 1990... Nope. <laughs> Can't say it, so I'm just not gonna... Hi, and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a podcast where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. I'm not very long ago. I am long ago. Ooh, then you go first. Yeah. Um, before we start off, I do want to start off with a shout out to Scarage for their song, It's a New Day. We used it in the background of our last episode during the the adventure portion of it. <laughs> and we didn't call him out at the end. He was in the show notes the whole time, but just wanted to make sure that we gave a shout out. I think you hadn't just, we hadn't decided what we were putting in the yes. back when we were recording. So yes. it wasn't... Lack of attribution. It was indecision. Yes. <laughs> there were a bunch of good songs that they have, and I didn't know which one I wanted to use yet. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I actually do have an update. Oh, yeah? Not from last week, but from the week before, um, because you talked about the Guinness Book of World Records, mm-hmm. and you talked about Michael Malloy specifically, who yeah. is the hardest man to kill. Yep. Something was striking me as weird in like my recollection of that story and what you said, and I realized I I looked I looked it up and um, the insurance claim actually had a clause in his policy that added money if the death was ruled accidental. Mm. So it would have been a total of thirty five hundred dollars or about sixty eight sixty eight thousand oh, in but, today's money. Yeah. So a little more worthwhile. Yeah. Still not justification to kill someone, but there. I don't. I feel like insurance companies have gotten rid of that um, clause more like currently because there were a lot of older, just that I remember hearing about of like insurance fraud where people like killed people or like tried to make something look like an accident so that their insurance would their insurance payout would be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. I feel like I think insurance companies don't do that anymore, but I could be wrong. I also think that I said that I thought the people who killed Malloy were involved in other insurance fraud schemes. I was wrong. Good. Remember that. It's recorded for posterity for I time was mistaken. To come. The two men who killed Malloy in particular were not involved in other insurance schemes, but there are a lot of instances of this exact almost exact thing happening for insurance purposes. And there was a group of people who went around killing random people to get their insurance money. I just want to say you said almost <laughs> exact thing happening. So I, I cannot wait to find the other instances of someone being given tons well, of alcohol, <laughs> then a lot of rat poison. Then... No, that's not what I meant. I meant <laughs> the, same, like, the same premise. Like, yeah, I know. I'm kidding. You're so mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was my uh, my little correction corner. Okay, so for my topic, we are going to be jumping all the way back to either 999 or the year 1000. Is there a reason it's um, not clear? Um, there's probably 
you know, a thousand years worth of reasons why it's not clear, <laughs> but at least the sources I found narrowed it down to one of the two dates. That's pretty good. Yep. So on September 9th of 999 or 1000 was the Battle of Swolder, which was the probably one of the greatest naval battles of the Viking Age. It sounds like something out of a Tolkien novel. A little bit. Swolder. Or a... <laughs> A Jim Bro writing fantasy. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so my topic is from the book of Heimskringla by the historian Snorri Sturluson of Iceland. And this book also documented major events involving many kings of Sweden and Norway. If Snorri Sturluson sounds familiar at all, they were also the author of the Prose Edda, which is where we derive a good bit of Norse mythology from. Oh, nice. Yep. That's quite the name, though. Yes, Snorri. Sounds like he should be one of the dwarfs in Snow White. You know, sleepy, bashful. Snorri. Snorri. <laughs> yep. Dopey. <laughs> You're dopey. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the book was written in about 1,230, just 11 years before, before Sturluson's death, and is claimed to be an accurate accounting of another book called Higyarstiki by oh. Eriker Odson, who... <laughs> whose book was unfortunately lost to time. Oh, well, that's so unfortunate with a name like that. And you're calling me the mean one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Sterlison uh, used this other book as a source very emphatically and claimed that it was very reliable many times mm. when writing his his books. But it's gone. But it's gone, so we so don't know. So there's no fact-checking. Yep. The archivist in me is screaming. <laughs> Sorry, it's from the year 1000. That isn't fair. So, like all historical battles, ours starts off as a catalyst of Christianity. And oh, Christianity good. playing a big role in how this whole battle got started. Sounds like most of the Middle Ages. So, yep. yep. So, we're going to go back a little bit to learn a little bit more about what led to this battle starting up, which is with King Olaf Tryggvason of Norway. And he was pillaging... Well, this is before he was king. He was pillaging his way around the globe when in Sicily he was told that there was a seer nearby. Did he want to know more about summer? No. <laughs> Olaf. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I'm really tired, guys. <laughs> Moving forward. When he arrived in Sicily, Olaf sent a, another person to pretend to be himself to test the seer. And when she immediately knew the double was a fraud, Olaf was convinced of her magical powers. Nice. Uh, so she talked with him about his fortune, and the record of his fortune is that thou wilt become a renowned king and do celebrated deeds. Many men wilt thou bring faith in baptism, and both thy own and others good, and thou mayest not doubt the truth of this answer. Listen to these tokens. When thou comest to thy ships, many of people will conspire against thee. Then a battle will follow in which many of men will fall. And thou wilt be wounded almost to death, and Yikes. carried upon a shield to thy ship. Yet after seven days thou shalt be well of thy wounds, and immediately thou shalt let thyself be baptized. Mm. All right. Yep. So, predicting his kinship, kink, kingship, and his conversion, apparently. Well, the conversion definitely didn't happen the way that the seer predicted, because, oh, well. <laughs> because on that spot, he was like, yep, I'm Christian now, here we go. Oh, uh, okay. Yep. <laughs> well, she tried. <laughs> So, One out of two ain't bad. It's yeah. 50-50. Uh, there's more than two things predicted in here. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking major plot points, but... Mm -hmm. 
So since this moment, he took the seer's words to heart and began spreading Christianity wherever he could. As someone who would eventually become a Viking king, his reach was far and his influence was strong. Like Hiccup. My god. Every other thing is going to be a reference for Tired Kylie. Yes. <laughs> so, and with this, his influence was also strong. So if people didn't believe his word, he tended to have no mercy for non-believers. Ouch. There are accounts of one man having a brazier of hot coals placed on their abdomen until they died. Uh, another man was forced to drink from a horn where Olaf placed a snake that he in- angered by prodding it with a hot poker until the snake went down the man's throat. What the f- ah! Yep. So, believe in Christianity if Mr. Olaf of Norway asks you to, because his tortures were insane. Yikes. He was spreading the good word. Yikes. That's not how you do that. So, if you can't tell, he was a cruel man, which will also play into the story of how he became king, which mer- which uh, mirrors a certain similar level of cruelty. I now regret my comparison. T- yeah. So... Olaf was actually in Ireland when he was first discovered by someone with actual Norwegian power. And hmm. they heard that he may be, that Olaf may be the son or heir of a previous Norwegian king. Okay. So they tried to figure this out and to see if he was actually a potential claim to this man's land holdings. Because at this point, Norway was separated into a bunch of different factions owned by different jarls and stuff like that. So eventually this word got to Olaf and he went to this section of Norway to face uh, King Hakon. And King Hakon was already not super popular in Norway at the time and there were some riots going on. So Olaf kind of just joined in on the riots of King Hakon and that eventually led him, uh, King the King Hakon, to be, or Hakon, I think it probably is. Nah, yeah, I, I don't know. At this point, so King Hakon uh, eventually hid himself in a pigsty with one of his slaves. Sneaky. Yep, named Kark. And <laughs> I don't know why that one was so funny to me. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately for Hakon, he and Kark were in a farm that Olaf was was walking over, okay. and he was talking with all of his with all of the other people rebelling. And said that he would offer a big reward to whoever brought King Hakon to him. So one night, as Hakon fell asleep, oh no. his slave Kark decapitated him. Oh no. And then brought Hakon's head to Olaf. Ooh. Olaf's reward? He decapitated Kark. <laughs> oh no. Yep. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because that's... Because it's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bring this man to me. And it's like, oh, you killed him? Guess what? You die too. Great, your turn. Yeah. Yee. You were a traitor. Goodbye. Yee. I mean, it's kind of smart. Don't keep traitors in your midst. I mean, yeah, but like, yikes. Yep. <laughs> I mean, so- maybe he was a cruel master. Maybe, maybe it was the slave's chance to be free. And then he was killed for it. I don't, I have no idea. The moral of the story is we've learned how much of a nice guy Olaf was. Yeah, not. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to fast forward a bit to after he became king. Olaf made it his goal to unite all of Scandinavia under his rule and under Christianity. One of the major stops on this crusade required him to get an alliance with Denmark. So Olaf set out to marry Sigrid Storada, a noble in Denmark. Oh. Yep. However, she refused to convert to Christianity. This angered Olaf, and he slapped her. Oh, oh. Which is about Bad. the 
Yeah, not nice. But, That's mean. But probably the nicest of his punishments he's ever given Spousal out. Spousal abuse, but I mean, yeah, on on his barometer, that was fairly yeah. benign. Also not spousal, because he asked her to marry her, and oh, she right, said no. Right. So that's just, like, abuse. It's, yeah, he just hit somebody. Um, Sigrid supposedly said that that action would be the death of him. Oh. Yep. She's so, going to tell her daddy, probably. So leaving leaving Denmark, he headed to a country called Wenden, where he married a woman named Tira, the sister of King Svein, uh Forkbeard of Denmark. Okay. Yep. Tira agreeing to marry Olaf was likely to spite her brother for marrying her off to mm-hmm. King Burislav of the Wends. Oh. When they and after they married, Olaf couldn't collect a dowry because oh. she ran away from a husband who was already given a dowry. Ah. Um, and he needed to claim the land back from King Burislav. So word of this got back to Sigrid Storadotter, uh, Storadot, Storada who at this point was married to King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark. Oh, okay. Yep. She she definitely traded up, I think. Yep. She convinced her husband to ally with King Olaf of Sweden and Jarl Hakenerson of Norway uh, to ambush King Olaf of Norway as he headed to Wenden. If Hakenerson sounds a little bit familiar, Jarl Hakenerson was one of the sons of King Hakon. Because that's how naming convention yep. goes in yep. Sweden. Yep. Yep. It says it right in the name. It does. So-and-so's son. <laughs> so you're seeing a, there's a lot of little webs connecting here that we're all very mm. closely related. In... It's a web of lies. Well, not no. lies, but... <laughs> uh, it's called Olaf of Norway messed with the wrong people too many times, and all of them <laughs> happen to know each other. Whoopsies. Yep. <laughs> So she convinces them to do this, most likely to make good on her word to Olaf that slapping her in the face would be the death of him. Mm. She's a little bit of a seer herself, I think. Yep. <laughs> so unknowing Olaf Tryggvason sailed his 11 ships to Wenden to take over the small claim of land from an unknowing King Burleslav, sailing right into a trap set by a woman who he abused over not liking Christianity. <laughs> King Olaf the Swede of Sweden... His last name, just because I found it like halfway through, I wanted to mention it. He was King Olaf Fotkenig. Oh, boy. Yeah. So kind of an interesting thing that happens with Swedish language is if you have an SK and an O with an umlaut, it doesn't make a sk sound. It makes a f. I don't like that convention. Yeah. So <laughs> if you see like turtle is spelled that way and it's fold pattern. Oh, no. Instead of. Scold. There's no SK. It's a, it's a. It's like a weird, like breathy F. Poor turtles. <laughs> yep. So King Olaf Fotkanug, the Swede, brought about fifteen to sixty vessels nice. to this fight. To this Wait, fight. Fifteen. There's to many different sources. Okay. So right. anywhere between fifteen and sixty vessels were brought. Fair enough. Jarl Eric Hakenerson of Norway brought five to nineteen vessels, and King Svein Forkbeard of Denmark brought 30 to 60 vessels. All right. Obviously, he was a little bit more enthused by this because it was his wife that asked him fair, to do it. Fair enough. <laughs> yep. In all of the five-ish accounts of this battle, the people ambushing Olaf of Norway had somewhere between 70 to 139 vessels compared to Olaf's 11 ships in every account. Ooh. <laughs> every oh. account mentioned that Olaf only had 11 ships. <laughs> He's very outnumbered. Yes. Um, in one account, it claimed that Olaf of Norway also had 60 ships, but they belonged to Jarl Sigvaldi, 
and they deserted Olaf <laughs> when the ambush happened, leaving him with just his own 11 ships. Smart. So they're just like, saying, see ya, smart. peace. <laughs> we are not fighting this many countries. We're out. <laughs> this is not our circus. Oh, we gone. <laughs> yep. Um, out of all the ships in the battle, we have descriptions of just four of them. The first three belong to Olaf of Norway, and the last belongs to Jarl Hakonarsson. The Crane was a large and fast ship that was once Olaf's flagship for a long time. Um, that was until he obtained the Serpent from a man that he tortured for not converting to Christianity. Of course. Yep. The ship was written off as the finest ship in Norway at the time. Wow. Yep. It was shaped like a dragon with a large head and a crooked and detailed tail. Its sails were fashioned to resemble dragon wings, and the head, tail, and stern of the ship were gilded. So, like, that's, like, what you think of as, like, the classic, like, Viking ship with, like, the the big head and, like, the stuff. Yeah, except it's not quite like the classic Viking ship because they were normally, like, portrayed as longboats that were kind of shallow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yep. th- this was a pretty big ship. That hmm. was, it, aesthetically, it looked like what you're talking about. Fair enough. Yeah. After that, Olaf ended up commissioning the Orman Lange, which is the Long Serpent. Oh. Yep. The Long Serpent was commissioned to be bigger and better version of the serpent that he obtained from the guy he tortured, and it was known as the most expensive ship in Norway. Wow. Yep. Um, and this is the ship that Olaf ended up captaining in, in that fight. Do you think he was compensating for something? I don't know. This guy was a crazy Viking. He pillaged stuff from Italy to Russia to Iceland. Like, he pillaged everywhere. Fair. So, he he might not have been compensating. (laughs) So, the last ship that was described was that of Jarl Hackerson. It was called the Iron Ram and was the largest of all ships present, which is kind of crazy considering how big and how expensive they were talking about Olaf of Norway's ships being. This guy's ship was huge if it was the largest of them all. Mm. Um, And he always used it for pillaging. He was known as a top-notch Viking, and his ship was commissioned to have a gigantic beak on the front of it made for ramming ships and destroying their hulls. So Olaf of Norway saw this ship and began to form a defensive strategy for surviving what was surely an insurmountable odd stacked against it. Uh, what he did was order his ten other boats to come close to the Orman Lange, and he anchored all the boats together, creating a floating fortress. Huh. Given the height of the Orman Lange and a lot of his other boats, this strategy worked really well, since they were so tall compared to most other ships, they had archers that were all along the edge of the boat firing at the allied forces of Sweden, Denmark, and the Jarl of Norway. Uh, Their strategy of linking boats together also meant that they didn't have to worry about steering anymore. They were one big raft and also surrounded, so none of their men were working on piloting any of the boats anymore. They could all focus on, like, fighting and defending. They were all fighting and defending. Uh, which is a pretty good strategy. (laughs) Yeah. So every Viking on board was able to pick up weapons and fight this ambush. The strategy worked for a really good amount of time, and, uh, well, at least until the Iron Ram came into play. (laughs) Pulling out some of the Allied forces' early ships, the Iron Ram would aim at surrounding ships in Olaf of Norway's floating fortress. One by one, the large beak would ram into the smaller ship's sides, eventually destroying it. And from what we know, Jarl Eric Hackenerson repeated this maneuver until nothing was left but the Orman Lodge. Oh, boy. So, where Olaf of Norway was. That's dedication. Yeah. Uh, just picked them off one by one. Ooh. 
on Olaf of Norway's ship was an archer named Einar Tambarskjelv. Einar Tambarskjelv. Okay. Uh, supposedly his skill was unmatched in that in these last moments of the battle, he tried to claim victory right from under the Alliance's noses. From the account, Einar pulled back shot at Jarl Hakkerinsen, barely missing his head and oh. burying his arrow almost the entire shaft into the wood behind him. Oh, yikes. Yep. That's a really strong shot. Yeah. Einar then pulled back again and this time connected with Jarl's side, uh, the arrow piercing all the way through his body. Ow. Uh, it, I don't think it was fatal. Oh, well, yeah, all right. From all accounts, because they, they did separate up Norway after this battle to different people. True, So okay. it pierced all the way through his body. Eric yelled for a man named Finn to shoot at Einar. Finn shot and hit the center of Einar's bow just as Einar pulled it all the way back, snapping the bow in two. Oh. The snap was so loud that Olaf of Norway asked his soldier what the noise was. After realizing what happened, the king gave Einar his own bow, to which Einar replied, it's too weak, and threw it aside, and then continued <laughs> to fight with a sword and shield. Okay, all right. This guy was good enough that he could insult Olaf and still Live. go on to fight. <laughs> Not sure if he lives. Oh, oh, no, I am sure if he lives. He becomes a politician later. Oh, all right. Yep. The threat of the bow apparently was enough. <laughs> yep. So he's like, your bow's too weak. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, eventually, Olaf of Norway's men are overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Kind of obviously, and I, I would, you would think so with only eleven ships. Yeah, and Jarl Eric was able to board the Long Serpent. Upon doing so, he sees Olaf of Norway let himself fall off the side of the boat, presumably killing himself and ending the the, the Battle of Swolder. All right. But if we remember the Seer's account, he would be wounded in this battle, and his wounds would heal as he floats oh. ashore. Oh. So he likely threw himself off of the boat in reference to the seer telling him that he will be wounded, fall off of a boat, and still survive after a few weeks. Yeah. So there's, like, accounts of people saying in different old scripts that they've seen Olaf of Norway mm-hmm. after this event. but And he, he goes down as, you know, one of the people like Alexander the Great, where, like, back in that time they weren't, sure if he was actually killed Mm -hmm. they just were told he was killed and never saw him again so a lot of people had thoughts that they were seeing him so kind of the same thing happens for olaf of norway all right yeah um so the battle is entire a ton of art and stories both in and out of scandinavia one of the works that i found was a manga called shishinu gotoku gotoku which means like a lion and there was also a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's piece called The Saga of King Olaf. You might recognize the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow as the man who wrote Paul Revere's Ride. Yep, he's a poet. Yeah. So that is my topic, the Battle of Swolder. Like a gym bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So what do you got for me? All right. So... We're going to hop in this time machine and come right back to the almost present. And um, and on September 13th, 1969, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? by Hanna-Barbera debuts on CBS in the United States. <laughs> What's with the face? You tricked me into watching <laughs> Scooby-Doo so that you could get material. Actually, no. I had I had already watched the episode I needed to watch. I just wanted to watch it because I had been watching it earlier that you day. You tricked me <laughs> into watching 
your own material with you. I mean, yes. <laughs> so I'm going to be completely upfront and say that Scooby-Doo is one of my all-time favorite cartoons from childhood and probably still today. <laughs> Considering I have rewatched like the original series several times. I'm pretty sure I've seen every episode at least once. Probably a lot more than that. Um, so... Um, it debuted with the first episode titled What a Night for a Night. The first night being with an N and the second night being with a K. So, so clever. Like, uh, it's, it's a lot more punny when you can see it written. <laughs> and so the hook for the first episode goes something like, When Scooby-Doo and Shaggy find an abandoned pickup truck with a knight's armor in the front seat, the gang deliver it to the museum in place of the missing professor. However, this black knight is said to come alive every full moon. As the gang investigate the knight, they realize that it is the full moon, and the knight has come alive. What whoa. Yeah, what was right. So in the episode, the group of teenagers um, and their dog find some jeweler's glasses. They break into the museum at night. They get chased by the black knight. They get separated. Shaggy with Scooby and Fred, and Vel- uh, Fred with Velma and Daphne, uh, pretty much as per usual. Um, Velma loses her glasses, which would become a running gag in the show, um, and frequently it would be whatever monster was chasing them kind of hands them back to her. She puts them on, she sees him and then runs kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, there are several different kinds of like gags with it where like the monster would like walk up to her and growl menacingly. She'd assume it was someone else, and then like it would wander like something would happen it would leave and then the the actual person she thought it would would show up and so she never knew it was there in the first place Mm -hmm. that kind of thing um and then they velma would inexplicably find her glasses again a lot of the time it was a continuity error where she didn't actually put them back on like when you see it she just shows up with them on in the next scene Mm -hmm. (laughs) um they would they found a hidden room fred then sets a trap and they catch the black knight who's then revealed to have been the museum curator who had been selling the museum's real paintings and replacing them with forgeries. Wow, well. Yeah, bad. The curator knew that the professor delivering the Black Knight would notice the fakes, and he hatched an elaborate plot to kidnap the professor and cover it up with the bogus legend of the Black Knight coming alive. And then they find the missing professor, and all is well. So I'm sure most of us are fami- familiar with some of the iconic phrases from the show. Daphne is the first character ever to say the iconic line, Scooby-Doo, where are you? Oh. I think I assumed it was Shaggy. It's actually I, Daphne. I think I also assumed it was Shaggy. Yeah, and it's actually in the first episode, so it's like kind of the start of like the whole thing. Um, and it's also, the first episode is also where Shaggy's exclamation, zoinks, first appears. You know, when like something startles him, he goes, zoinks, and mm-hmm. like runs away, essentially. Um, Velma's catchphrase, jinkies, doesn't come into play, I don't think, until like the second episode. Um if I remember correctly, I didn't write that part down. <clears throat> um, so additionally, Scooby is first encouraged to bravery through the use of Scooby snacks in this episode. And Shaggy uses ventriloquism to get him and Scooby out of a sticky situation. The gang um, the gang aren't called meddling kids until episode three of season two. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is titled Scooby's Night with a Frozen Fright. Although there are similar phrases that are used earlier, um, like blasted kids or like that kind of thing. Um, you dang youngins. Not that one. <laughs> but yeah, so like other phrases were used before meddling kids, but for some reason meddling kids is what became like the iconic line. Hmm. Yeah. But there's always some version of the, I, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling line. Um, so the 
And uh, also, the visual gag of Scooby Dooby Doors is first introduced in episode three called Hassle in the Castle. And if you don't recognize that term, it's the gag, it's like the visual gag where characters would be chased through a set of rooms connected to a hallway or be hunted in a set of um, containers with no connection at all, like shelves or something like that. And they would appear in new places without any regard for how they got there. Yep. So, you know, the being chased through and they'd pop into one room and then they'd pop out of one like four doors down or something like that. And the monster would open, look into the hallway, close it, show up in a different area. <laughs> yeah, look in, look over, see them, they'd all jump up, they'd go running into the next room, he'd go following in and they end up in different rooms, coming out of different doors. <laughs> they come out of the doors back to back, sneaking both of them yep. and they both startle <laughs> each other. Yep, so those are Scooby-Dooby doors. <laughs> Good to know there's a name for there that. There is a name for it. Um, so the Scooby-Doo Where Are You series aired from 1969 to 1978. The original voice cast featured veteran voice actor Don Messick as Scooby-Doo, radio DJ Casey Kasem, who later host, um, became host of radio's syndicated American Top 40, who voiced Shaggy, actor Frank Welker, who was later also a veteran voice actor in his own right, as Fred, actress Nicole Jaff as Velma, and musician Indira Stefaniana, oh boy. Yeah, Stefaniana as Daphne. Scooby's speech patterns closely resembled an earlier cartoon dog. Can you guess who it was, No Peek? No. It was Astro from the Jetsons. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who was also coincidentally voiced by Messick. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, so generally speaking, each of these episodes features Scooby and the four teenage members of Mystery Inc., Fred, Shaggy, Daphne, and Velma, all arriving at a location in the Mystery Machine which was a van painted in psychedelic colors and flower power imagery. Um, they encountered a ghost, monster, or other ostensibly supernatural creature that terrorized the local populace, and then they would decide to investigate. The kids would split up to look for clues and suspects while being chased at turns by the monster, or ghost or whatever. And eventually the kids came, would come to realize the ghost or other paranormal activity is actually an elaborate hoax, and often with the help of a Rube Goldberg-like trap that was designed by Fred, they capture the villain and unmask him, and revealed as a flesh-and-blood crook trying to cover up crimes by using the ghost story and costume, the criminal is then arrested and taken to jail, often repeating something nearly identical to, and I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. Um, so the role of each character was strongly defined in the series. Fred was the leader and the determined detective. Velma is the intelligent analyst. Daphne is danger-prone. Literally, it's in her... It's in what everyone calls her danger-prone Daphne. Yep. Um, Shaggy is a coward, more motivated by hunger than any desire to solve any mysteries. And Scooby is similar to Shaggy, save for a Bob Hope-inspired tendency towards temporary bravery. Also inspired by food in the form of Scooby stuff. Yeah. Also, I don't know if you remember, but I distinctly remember in childhood there being like a cookie-like scooby snack intended for children yes that were like teddy grams or something yes. i had those oh yeah yep <laughs> they really weren't that great but like i loved them anyway <laughs> they also ended up doing like gummies and a whole bunch of other yes the, the scooby, scooby gummies snacks. the scooby gummies were a hundred percent the best like gummies out there yeah um so later versions of the show made slight changes to the characters established roles most notably in the character of daphne who was shown in the 1990s and 2000s Scooby-Doo productions as knowing many forms of karate and having the ability to defend herself. So she was danger-prone, but she could, you know, take care of herself a little bit better than in the original. 
still gets into danger, sometimes gets herself out of danger. Yes, but she also had less of a tendency towards getting kidnapped. Mm -hmm. So she might, you know, accidentally find the revolving door, but she wasn't always getting kidnapped by the monster. So, you know, it balances, I guess. So the the TV influences of I Love a Mystery and Dobie Gillis were apparent in the first episodes of the similarities between Scooby-Doo teens and the Dobie Gillis teens. The similarities between Shaggy and Maynard are the most noticeable. And if you don't remember Dobie Gillis, I did not, like, write anything about it down. So, um, Wikipedia will be your new best friend. So, both Shaggy and Maynard shared the same beatnik-style goatee. They had similar hairstyles, and then they also had very similar, like, demeanors. Um, the core premise of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, was also similar to Enid Blyton's Famous Five books. And as both series featured four youths with a dog, and the Famous Five stories often revolved around a mystery, which inevitably turned out not to be supernaturally based, but simply a ruse to disguise the villain's true intent. So very much like all our masked villains in Scooby-Doo. It the, was... the five books actually started this week also. I think I saw that too and yeah. I didn't I didn't know I wasn't familiar with them. Yep. So I stuck on Scooby Doo. <laughs> um so yeah, so very, very similar premise and a lot of influence from both the shows and um the books. So Scooby Doo itself influenced many other Saturday morning cartoons of the nineteen seventies. During that decade, Hanna Barbera and its competitors produced several Animated programs also featuring teenage detectives solving mysteries with a pet or a mascot of some sort, um, including Josie and the Pussycats, the Funky Phantom, the Amazing Chan and the Chan Chan Clan, that's a mouthful, Speed Buggy, Goober and the Ghost Chasers, Jabberjaw, and Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels, among probably a lot of others. Uh, Jabberjaw was easily my favorite of the others. Is that the one with the shark? Yes. 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 <laughs> I, know my, was, I know my dad's favorite was Captain Caveman. Yeah. Jabberjaw was nuts. I really liked Josie and the Pussycats because it was all Josie, women. Pussy. I think it was something like that. Yes, it was. No, that's almost exactly what it was. Um, Speed Buggy was fun, too, though. Yeah. I liked Speed Buggy. I mean, they were all, they were all pretty fun, but Jabberjaw was, was definitely the one yeah. I liked the most. I really enjoy saying that I really in- I liked these shows because they all aired in the 70s, and I was not alive then, and you were not either. Nope. But I watched a lot of Cartoon Network reruns. Yep. <laughs> and Boomerang. I think Boomerang at this point was a different entity. Boomerang, I don't think existed until the early 2000s. It wasn't called Boomerang until then. Probably. Yeah. I still watch them on Boomerang. It, it might. It might have as been as a teenager. Yes. It, it might have been the the late 90s, but I think it was called Maybe. something different before it was called Boomerang. It might have yeah. just been called Cartoon Rerun or something like I that. Can, yeah, I'm not sure. Um. Yeah, I know that you can currently get a Boomerang subscription through Prime Video, and that may or may not have been what I did this afternoon. Oh, boy. So that I could watch the first episode. (laughs) So there have been 11 other Scooby-Doo TV series, including Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, which introduced Scooby-Doo's puppy nephew, Scrappy-Doo. There have also been four live-action movies um, titled Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, which were um, actually theatrical releases, and you might remember them as featuring Freddie Prince Jr. as Fred, Sarah Michelle Gellar as Daphne, Matthew Lillard as Shaggy, and Linda Cardellini as Velma. And then um, Neil Fanning was the voice of Scooby-Doo. And it also had Rowan Atkinson as the villain, (laughs) which is the best. (laughs) There was also Scooby-Doo, The Mystery Begins, which when, I I don't think it was theatrical, I think it was a TV, made for TV. 
um, which came out in 2009. Yeah, and, and it was a prequel to the live-action movies. So it was them as teenagers. Um, and then it was followed by Scooby-Doo Curse of the Lake Monster in 2010, which was also them as teenagers. I didn't see either of those, not going to lie. Nope. Me neither. <laughs> didn't know they existed. Yep. Um, additionally, there have been an insane amount of direct-to-video animated movies, 25 to be exact. Yep. Um, I think I've seen half. I feel like that's a pretty good guess for me. I mean, a lot of them, or, or at least at least a few of them, have to do with that like trio of ghosts, and then there's mm-hmm. the trio of witches mm-hmm. that they do a few of them hex with. Hex girls. Yeah, the hex girls. Yep. And then uh, the John Cena ones. Yep, the wrestling ones. Yep. And then the Batman ones. Yep. Did they ever? There's... Did they ever do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I don't think they did Teenage Mutant Ninja no. Turtles. But yeah, no. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, crossover with different characters in the movies specifically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 25 movies. Um, the, I rem- if I recall, I think like the first five aired on TV. I'm not sure about the rest of them, but I distinctly remember it being announced that there was going to be a Scooby-Doo movie and being like, we have to be home to watch that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have my, so my family has the fifth movie, Scooby-Doo and the Legend of the Vampire on VHS at my parents' house. And I watched that movie so many times, I could probably quote it if I watched it again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I particularly liked it because it was set in Australia, which was fun, and has the Hex Girls, which was my favorite. Um, And they're the all-girl eco-goth rock band. And the music in that show, because it was centered on, like, a music competition, was super catchy. Yeah. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. And Vilma got to have her, like, rock star moment, and that was, like... All I wanted as a child until I realized I was terrified of people. <laughs> <laughs> I quickly realized that was not the path for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's also 12 Scooby-Doo video games. And I distinctly remember never being able to finish the one called Scooby-Doo Mystery Mayhem, which was I played on the Game Boy Advance. It was the only game I ever played on the Game Boy Advance because I was really bad and I wasn't dedicated to anything else my brother had mm-hmm. to even give it a chance. I never made it past level two. Oh, there you go. There were five. So, in the grand scheme of things, could have been worse, I guess. <laughs> you almost made it to 20%. I, no, I made it to like... Oh, no, you almost made, made it to 40%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. we go. Yep. Yep. Um, the premise is that the gang finds out someone has released thousands of real ghosts and monsters from a book called The Tomb of Doom. Haha. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. And they have to race to solve mysteries and put the monsters back. And Mystery Mayhem was met with a very mixed reception. Game rankings and Metacritic gave it a score of 53.2%. Not the worst I've seen. 53 out of 100 for the Game Boy Advance. A little bit better for Xbox at 56 out of 100. PlayStation 2 had 55 out of 100. And the GameCube version was at 54. So the Game Boy Advance was the worst, apparently. So I'm blaming my inability to get very far on that fact alone. Sure, sure. We can go with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are a ton of games. So one thing the Scooby-Doo franchise is known for is their crossover episodes, which you brought up earlier. Um, each episode of the second series titled The New Scooby-Doo Movies, um, fe- which aired in like the late 70s, featured a real or fictitious guest star helping the gang to solve mysteries, including characters from other Hanna-Barbera series, such as Harlem Globetrotters, also people in real life. But Oh, yeah, and the they Harlem all voiced... Globetrotters were there a lot. Yes, I loved those episodes. They were so funny. So the Harlem Globetrotters 
being real people in real life who actually voice their characters. Josie and the Pussycats and Speed Buggy. There were comic book characters like Batman and Robin. And celebrities such as um, Sandy Duncan, The Addams Family, also fictitious, but still. Cass Elliot, Phyllis Diller, Don Knotts, and The Three Stooges. Yep. And then last but not least, I'm going to address a couple of urban legends surrounding Scooby-Doo. Have you ever heard the idea that the five characters are based off the five colleges of the Five College Consortium in Western Massachusetts? I have you've not. Ne- you've <laughs> never, never heard, heard You've that. never heard that there's um, a corresponding college for each character? Nope. Okay. Wow. I knew something about Massachusetts that you didn't. Yep. Ha ha ha. Um, Too bad it's all fake. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the legend has it that Daphne represents Mount Holyoke, Velma ha- is Smith College, Fred is Amherst, Shaggy as Hampshire College, and Scooby as UMass Amherst. Um, well, Hanna-Barbera Productions, CBS executive Fred Silverman, and Mark Evanier, one of the show's writers, have both stated that the legend is false. Moreover, Scooby-Doo creators Joe Ruby and Ken Spears have been explicit in the cartoon show being based on the radio program I Love a Mystery and the sitcom The Many Loves of Doobie Gillis, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, And they're, like, directly based off of the characters from Doobie Gillis. Yep. Um, In addition, Scooby-Doo made its television debut in 1969, one year before Hampshire College even opened. Yep, that's tough. Yep. <laughs> that's a tough sell on so, that one. So, in reality, it was just a deliberate plan to give each kid a kind of archetypical, you know, like, personality. Right. And they wanted them to be, like, relatable. So, having a different person with, like, each kind of personality type meant that you had someone to relate to. Right. So, the next myth is that Shaggy and Scooby represent stoners, which is why they constantly have the munchies while driving around in a flower power van. According to the rumor, this was a deliberate in-joke by the animators that flew over the heads of the network base. And while this myth is widespread, it is, in fact, false. You look mildly confused. Yeah, because you just said that it was an in-joke. It would... It, so the rumor is that it was an in-joke. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the rumor is that it was an in-joke that to to get it over the, like, people in charge. Right. Um, so it, it wasn't. Um... Dozens of arguments could be offered as to why no self-respecting middle-aged Hanna-Barbera artist or writer in 1969 would even think of jeopardizing the success of the show with such a joke. But the easiest um, refutation is to go to the source. It's not true. <laughs> um, Iwao Takamoto, who designed the character, said, The creative team never brought that into play in our thinking about the show. It wasn't until much later that this sort of rumor began to surface. Besides, he adds, one of the key uh, creative players in the development of Scooby-Doo was, in fact, a network executive. So Fred Silverman would have had to have been in on the joke himself, or he would have had to have been, like, very uncharacteristically oblivious, which, according to Takamoto, just was not him. So it's extremely unlikely that someone would have slipped, like, intentionally done that, Mm -hmm. especially with... Fred Silverman being so actively involved. So third, the rumor that the name Scooby-Doo was inspired by Frank Sinatra's recording of Strangers in the Night, the doobie-dooby-doo part, is actually true. Oh, okay. Yeah. The rumor is that he heard the song while traveling on an airplane, and he swears that it's true, and the story's been told so frequently that at this point it is truth. (laughs) So that's a quick and dirty look at Scooby-Doo. 
Um, just be thankful I didn't list off all of the TV shows and movie titles because that would have taken forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say if anyone's looking for some Scooby-Doo shows to watch beyond the original, I've watched a lot of the newer shows and I really enjoyed What's New Scooby-Doo, which incorporates a lot of more modern elements, including recent technology like the internet. I also really, but still is very true to the original, same kind of style and stuff. What's New Scooby-Doo is what we grew up with, technically, right? I think so, yeah. It was coming out when we were, like... When we were younger. When we were younger, yeah. Yeah, I think it aired from, like, 2000 to, like, 2006 or something like that. Yeah. So, I... But I distinctly remember watching a lot of reruns of the original. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then watching that also and being, like... I was just saying that, that was the one that we age-wise right. yes, that, grew up with. That was what came out when we were like the age of watching Scooby-Doo. Yes. Um, so I also really like Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which kind of rebooted the franchise in 2010. While still following the basic mystery-solving format of its predecessors, it was broadcast as a 52-chapter animated television novel and included elements similar to live-action mystery and adventure shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Lost. It had an overarching mystery surrounding the gang's hometown hometown of Crystal Cove, California, um, became the series' main story arc, with pieces of the mystery unfolding episode by episode. It also featured um, more romantic entanglements and interpersonal conflict between the lead characters. I remember in the original Scooby-Doo, like, Fred and... Fred and Daphne were kind of like a thing, but it was never really like addressed very heavily. In this, you get it, you got a lot more of that like relationship building and forming and that kind of thing. Um, Not just me and Daphne will check out the attic. Eyebrow raise, eyebrow raise, yep. gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is a lot more um, in depth, like a lot more interpersonal connections and like really getting to see that character development in a way that you never did in the original or even the earlier shows to be yeah. um, at all. Um, but it's so that like that's a much more modern style of doing shows like that. So it makes sense that it would have come back around in a way. It stopped being episodic and started being serialist. Yeah, it has a yeah. lot more of the the overarching stuff. Yeah. Um, I a hundred percent binge watched it when it came to Netflix. I don't doubt this at all. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really I really really liked that one. So yeah, <laughs> watch some more Scooby Doo guys. <laughs> And that's me. <laughs> cool. So time for our call to action. So you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Halfway History. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash halfwitpod. You can send us an email to halfwitpod at gmail.com. And you can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com. Yes. Um, also, if anyone would like to leave a review um, on Apple Podcasts, that would be super duper appreciated. Um, we've gotten a couple recently, um, so we just want to say a little bit of thank you. Um, Ash McToe, so toe. Well, you you know who my it friend is. Ashley. <laughs> her 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 username I would say is Ash Mike though. <laughs> Sure, let's go with that. But Ashley <laughs> wrote a um, really nice review, so thank you very much. Um, we really appreciate it. And then we got someone named uh, Thunder Scrotum um, nope. that uh, that uh, just said he likes listening or they like listening to it in the bath. So you know what? You do you, bud. You do you. It was five stars. We love you, Thunder Scrotum. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, thanks to you, I guess. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, as always, to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. 
You can find him on SoundCloud. Go check him out. And check out our episode description so that you can just have a link right there for yeah. him. Ease of convenience. Yes. Are we ready for some fun facts? And by that I mean a singular fun fact. If you can find your notes. <laughs> do I go with a fun fact that fits the theme of what I did? Or do I do with a fun fact that's just kind of a fun fact? Up to you. Well, that's not helpful. I know. <laughs> um... Do the theme one. Okay. On September 11th of 1850, the Swedish Nightingale, Jenny Lind, does her first U.S. concert. I have that listed as a possible fun fact. Yeah. Considering how frequently I listen to... um, British Showman. Yep. That one with Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. So my fun fact is that on September 12th, 1981, the Smurfs animated cartoon series by Hanna-Barbera first broadcasted in the U.S. Oh, I see we both did a theme. Yes, we did. I like me some cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) So as always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. We'll see you next week. Bye. Left and I